Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. What turned down? A U N American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human god to eliminate all risk from their life. Pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right if they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, though the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks everyone for coming back. Every Thursday we've been doing this. It's always a pleasure to have us back on Uh, We're going to do a little bit of a sound check just to make sure our guest is on the line with us, Pat Riot. Pat, if you're there, just uh, acknowledge that you're there. I I think you're coming in through TalkShoe, perhaps. Should I just tap it three times? There you go. (laughs) All right. We can hear you. Sounds good. This is uh, uh, one of our most popular guests, everyone. Patrick Riot has been with us for several years, uh, very timely, very current. Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, met with President Trump yesterday. Uh, we have a deep state coup d'etat <laughs> brewing on our hands right now as the internals of government, the deep state government, is attacking uh, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, and his people from inside, from outside. It's, it's pretty chaotic right now what's going on in D.C., but there's definitely some something is afoot, some changes 
are happening. And uh, just wanted to see if, uh, Pat, if you want to weigh in on this, uh, where are we at right now? Obama's gone. Uh, Trump is now in. None of us expected Trump to be allowed to, to, to get into this position, but a whole uprising seems to have taken place. A lot of pissed off people, former Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, people from the, from the middle of this country, uh, really came out in droves and voted for Trump and, and kicked Hillary and the, and the Clintons out of there. Uh, and hopefully they'll never come back. But uh, uh, we live in interesting times. Thanks for coming on, Pat. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here and appreciate having the opportunity. Um, anything that you discuss about the circumstances that surround Trump today has to be taken in context of what has happened in this past year and a half. The assumption was that the woman, uh, Hillary, would be the next president of the United States, which would continue what can be I guess best and nicely described as a globalist effort to, I guess, level out the United States gradually to being just another country subordinate to Israel and as the eventual dominant force in the world, economic force. And even then, when Israel would become the dominant economic force, it would not be seen as such. Was the the control over the banking systems of the world will emanate from Rothschild, which will remain probably in Britain. But Israel is the protected enclave. The new shekel, the Israeli new shekel, would eventually emerge, whether it's this year, next year, or in 10 years, as the powerful currency. Because we're involved in a, in a war of currency. We're not involved in a war of military um, explosions, um, invasions by our captors. Our captors do not do that. Our captors use the military systems of the world to fight each other and to degrade each other, much the same as they did during the Austro, uh, Austrian uh, Empire back in Europe when Rothschild hit one warring faction against another, when he lent money to two or three sides and gradually worked it down to a victor. And the victor now was forced into not changing the borders so Rothschild could emerge once again in 10 or 20 or 50 years as the financier to the kingdom that Rothschild wanted to pick as the winner. And I'm rambling on you a little bit on purpose. I just want you to think about all of what I'm saying in this short two or three minutes. What you're watching today it's a surprise. It's a surprise to us, and more importantly, it's a surprise to those people who had been putting the United States on a trajectory of mediocrity and still using our military at the tail end of our reign of greatness or whatever you would like to call us until the point in time when we had been defeated. You have to go back to 1939 to understand some of what we were facing and what we have been impacted with because these bastards, these, and here it's going to be difficult for you to understand what I'm going to say next, these Jewish bastards, these brilliant Jewish bastards were repeating what they did in 1939 on Bloody Sunday in Poland. Now, in the first war, 
Germany was forced to give up an awful lot of territory. And Danzig, which was essentially a complete German province, complete German enclave, like 80-90%, was now allocated over into Poland. And Hitler tried to get Danzig back into the German fold, into the German geography. And he asked Poland to allow the people of Danzig to make a democratic vote. Poland was impacted by the European governments, most notably Britain, which were in fact impacted by the U.S. and the British Jews, to not permit that to happen. And it was to provoke. They wanted to provoke a war. Provocation would leave the door open then for other nations of the world to enter that war and crush and take over and displace all of Germany and let Germany amalgamate into the rest of the European nations. It was the Jewish intent at the time to take Germany down and eliminate it. Danzig, which was entirely a German colony within the Polish country, within Poland, as a result of the First World War, was going to be the spark that lit the fuse or the fuse that started the war, the Second War. We're facing a circumstance that's very similar. If you go back about five years into the Obama um, presidency, back into about 13, which would be four years, four years ago, three to four years ago, you had a democratically elected president of Ukraine. And I'm trying to remember, and I can't remember his name. But in early 14, Victoria Newland, really Kagan, very Jewish woman, and her original maiden name was Noodleman. Victoria Kagan, which, which is an assistant secretary of state, set about with other forces within the U.S. State Department, other Jewish State uh, Department uh, employees, Israeli citizens is probably a fair way to describe this because all Jews are not involved, but they are used for camouflage with the uh, rhetoric that uh, surrounds the charge of anti-Semitism. All Jews are not involved, but we do have a Jewish syndicate that runs our government, that has run our government, and may still have a strong hand in our government. But at that time, they created a coup. This democratically elected president of Ukraine who was leaning to stay with Russia, not join NATO, stay with Russia because their, their best chance was with Russia, at least it was believed at that time. Victoria Newland and the rest of the Jews in our State Department, uh, controlling our State Department, had created a coup, and Petroshenko was replaced or replaced the, um, the democratically elected president of Ukraine. So Putin, who we are viewing as an enemy, thug or otherwise, not really as bad a guy as we're supposedly our media and our, our elected politicians are, are making him out to be, but Putin looked at this. He watched a democratically elected president of Ukraine be replaced by a Jewish, partially Jewish, because his father was Jewish, which doesn't really make him totally Jewish, 
Petroshenko took over, who is now gone, by the way, and was now leading to join NATO to stick it up Putin's ass in Russia and say, I am going to become part of NATO and we'll be on your border and we'll be here defending the European economy, the European interests, whatever. And that was all done very cleverly by a group of Jews within the U.S. State Department. Putin sat there and he watched this happen. He knew what was happening because Russia has been a target of Rothschild banking and the Jews back through four generations for the past 80 to 100 years. And Putin is no, he's no ignorant, he's not ignorant of these facts. We are as a public. Our public has never been taught this. We're not taught in our schools. And Putin looked at this, and Putin just recently, about four months earlier in late 13, declared that the Russian Orthodox Christian Church will be the official church of Russia. That was a fatal mistake on his part. That pushed it over the edge. And he said any other religion here can survive and can exist and do what they wish, but the Russian Orthodox Christian Church would become the official church of Russia. And from that point forward, the Jews became enraged in our State Department, the Jews that were running our State Department. The Jews run our government. They run our debt system. They run our military. They can't do it overtly, but they do it. The nudge here and the nudge there. This is why you see our men and our women dying all the time for the state, so-called state of Israel. So what you're watching today is very much aligned and similar to, and I'll ask you to Google, when you, if you want to write something down, write it down, Bloody Sunday, 1939. And that will take you into the history of when Hitler came to the rescue of Danzig. The Jews in Poland were functioning as terrorists then. The origin of terrorism is Jewish. It's not Muslim. It's not Aborigine. It's not Indians with the cavalry. Terrorism was founded and, and exploited and perfected by Jews. There's no getting away. You can't ignore it. And they made a, 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 a pattern out of it in 1917 forward when the Irgun and the Der Stern gang went into Palestine and began murdering, killing thousands and thousands of Palestinians. So terrorism was really founded by the Jews over the years because they do these false flags and go into nations of the world and cause friction and have one nation start a fight with a war, whatever, against another. And that's what they did in the Polish corridor to Danzig from Germany. Hitler made every overt gesture, and I'm not excusing Hitler at all. I'm just suggesting that Hitler had more peaceful intention than he had warlike intention, and he was not so anti-Semitic, except that he understood what was taking place. The problem he had is he blamed all of the Jews instead of the syndicate of Jews that uh, populate and operate throughout the governments of the world separately. Anti-Semitism has become a rallying cry to protect the Jews, and more importantly, protect the syndicate of Jews that exercise this influence throughout the world and cause these tremendous problems between nations. It's not the Jews as a whole. It is strictly a syndicate of Jews. One of the things I've learned, too, just to touch on this right now, is the Jews as a whole understand what's going on. They're just not involved. They're no different than the Italians of the 1950s and 60s. They knew that Tony, their brother, Tony, their uncle, Tony, their cousin, was a member of the mafia, but they dare not speak about it. The Jews today know they have a syndicate an operational syndicate 
to control the monetary systems and the debt systems of the world. And they lie in the background, motivating the military systems of the world to cause friction and war. And the 1939 Bloody Sunday of Danzig was the precursor to Putin taking over the Crimea and what even Trump today is facing. Go to war, go to war, go to war, go to war. Russia is a target. Russia is a thug. Russia is a horrible country, but it's not. So what we still have in our nation and our leadership are a group of Jews who are rallying the cry to go to war. And we have Trump as an accidental president. He was not planned. Hillary Clinton would have gladly done whatever her masters told us told her to do. When you look at the emails, you find emails between Evelyn de Rothschild from Saddle River, New Jersey, directly to Clinton, thanking her for what she has done in Kuwait, in Saudi, in dividing the Arab nations of the world. It's a fascinating study. In 1978, 1979, a group of Israelis got together and they wrote a plan to divide the Arab nations, to balkanize the Arab Arab nations, to weaken them, to split them, to splinter them. They didn't know in 1978 and 79 how they would do that. Not until Israel did 9-11. 9-11 was the kickoff point to allow the American public to believe we had an enemy in the Middle East. And the U.S. military should be used to begin the process to balkanize the Arab states, just like the Israeli plan that was written in Hebrew in 1978 through 1979. It's been exposed. It's been translated to English. Israel Shack, the patriot, a Jewish patriot, in fact, has a great deal to do with the exposure of that plan that no one on this line tonight can know will understand, but the fact of the matter remains. The United States has been prompted to aid Israel in balkanizing the Arab states. And that's what we're living through today. All of these wars, all of this conflict, all of this death and destruction has been brilliantly planned by the Rothschild family using Israel. It's a fascinating study, and if you ask me what's happening today, we're watching the beginning of a potential meltdown between the United States and Russia. Hopefully, that doesn't happen. Hopefully. Any questions? Holy cow. Pat, that was uh, quite an introduction. Uh, It's too early for questions, but I'll throw one out there. Do you think Trump is going to fall for this this headlong urge into provocation, provoking uh, this 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 World War III, whatever you want to call it, with Russia? Do you think? I I don't know. I I do know that Steve Bannon's not an idiot, but I also know that that Breitbart who began Breitbart, began it with a Jew in Tel Aviv. 
And Breitbart began Breitbart News back in, I don't know, eight, nine years ago with the firm goal of defending Israel and bringing to the, to the world's attention all of the goodness in Israel. And there certainly is goodness. Unfortunately, it's, it's a minor portion of what the Israeli state is all about. The Israeli state is about things that are perverse and sick, destructive and invasive of other governments of the world because that's really what the, the government and the military and the, the controlling powers of Israel are all about. The Breitbart, Breitbart, who was a Jew by accident, Andrew Breitbart was adopted by a Jewish family. He was a Christian by birth. And the next thing I'll tell you is you cannot be a Jew except by birth. So while Andrew Breitbart was a Jew or raised as a Jew, he could never be one. But Andrew Breitbart, six, seven years ago, sitting in a bar, a fellow by the name, I think his name was Kovacs or Slovaks or something like that, said that I'm going to give an alternate, I'm going to develop an alternate news program, alternate news methodology, and we're going to form it because I'm inspired by what I see here in Israel. Well, Breitbart died prematurely. There are those that say he was assassinated, and there's a possibility there because Breitbart may very well have found out all of what I'm teaching you, telling you about tonight. I can't say teach because I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're buying into what I'm telling you. You can check it out, and then you make your own decisions. But Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon has a wide background. He has a few years at Goldman Sachs, not a lot. He's He's a retired Navy commander. He's a common sense guy. And he's not easily led by vanity, and you can tell that because he's not out there dragging his name in front of the public or getting as much time in front of the news. Because if he wanted, he could be on every news channel. He could be on every reporter's uh, interview for the day or the week or the month. And he's not seeking that out. And I, deep in my heart, I believe and I certainly hope that Steve Bannon is, in fact, a voice in Trump's ear about what's been going on in the world the last 200 years with these Jews. These Jews are incredibly brilliant. They work with a plan that's not to provide results in a two or three or 20 year time span. If you have to, if you have to provide results, if you have to prove results in a, in a two to a 10 or 15 year time span, you can stand back on the side. You can stand there as an observer. You can see the things take place. These people plan over generations. They move at the speed of a glacier. A generation will never see a Michael Chertoff do the things Michael Chertoff has accomplished. You have to understand the generation before him and the generation of his before that. And unless you understand what they've all been doing intergenerationally, you won't understand. And that's Rothschild's planning. When you go to the Rothschild Protocols, the Rothschild Protocols of War, better known as the Protocols of the Learned 
elders of Zion. There are 24 protocols. Those are 24 lectures given by Natty Rothschild or someone in his place, but they were given by Natty Rothschild in August of 1897 in Basel, Switzerland, which conveniently in 1930 houses the Bank of International Settlements, which was set up to handle the bankruptcy of the world's central banks, which was hidden from the public. So when you go to these protocols, these Rothschild protocols of war, you find out that Rothschild, while he's declared to be a banker, is really a warrior. He's not a banker. To call him a banker would be like calling Attila the Hun and Charlemagne and Constantine the Great, Constantinople, Constantine the Great, blacksmiths because they made arrows and wheelbarrows, not wheelbarrows, but, but wagon wheels and horseshoes and knives. They had great blacksmiths. And if you were to call them blacksmiths, then you could get away with calling Rothschild a banker. But Rothschild's not a banker. He uses debt that he can create, creative bonds, creative debt instruments as weapons of war. It destabilizes nations. It allows his soldiers, his Michael Chertoffs, his Alan Greenspans, his Ben Shalom Bernankes, his Janet Yellens, it allows them to come into a country and create confusion, anxiety, and distress while his other warriors take over the reins of power of the military. It's a brilliant, brilliant planning for war, not for banking. And all of this takes us right back down to the Danzig Corridor in 1939 and the analogy to the Crimea, what Putin has did, done, and now all of the consternation of the United States and the world focused on how Putin illegally, immorally took Crimea, which belonged to Russia for two centuries. He didn't do anything wrong. He did what you would do or I would do if you were in their place or his place. So we're watching the circumstances festering. And we're looking at Trump and we're saying, does he know? Can he figure it out? What will he do? And I pray that Steve Bannon is the man on the inside that has enough knowledge, to a limited degree at least, to keep Trump on the right track. Now, one of the challenges that you face in this analogy or this analysis is that Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who is an Israeli citizen, and his daughter, Ivanka, who is an Israeli citizen and like kind, and had her baby in Israel last year. What's Jared Kushner's role? What's Steve Miller, the attorney who is on Trump's staff? What's his role? What's the role of all of these Jews who are close to Trump and watching him like a hawk? Now, if you remember the movie The Godfather, there was a point in The Godfather when somebody said to an Italian pizza maker or funeral parlor fellow and said, Godfather will grant you this favor. But be aware, someday the Godfather will come to you too for a favor. So when Jared Kushner's here, is he currently engaged in an operation that's anti-American 
or is he there on the bench waiting to be called in? That's the brilliance of the of the army, the military army that Rothschild has planted in the nations of the world, most notably in the United States government. There's a large picture here, and I've never gotten into it to this degree because I've never been able to articulate it in a comfortable way, and I'm not so sure I'm able to articulate it properly even this evening. So this is the first attempt. I have an editor. I have really a group of editors looking at my book, trying to figure out how to get it together so it makes some sense, because it's got to be produced. It's got to be published. And Fred, you were kind to give me this opportunity to get on and talk. And all I can talk about is this one focused issue about the parallels between Crimea, Putin, the Jews in the U.S. State Department that's moving the United States more in the direction of war with Russia to that day in 1939. It was, I think, August on that bloody Sunday in Danzig in Poland when Hitler's Germans were attacked by Jewish terrorists. These are the times we live in today. And it seems to me that these terrorists are repeating the same tactic in 2017 and 16 and 15 and 14 that those Jews initiated in 1939 in the Danzig Corridor. I could talk about a lot more, but it'll move us too far off the subject. So Rich, Rich in, Danz- in Danzig, were those terrorists going after Hitler's Germans or the or the native Germans of Danzig? The the, the Danish Germans of Danzig or the Dan- the Danzig Germans. The, okay, Hitler's Hitler Germans. Hitler was not attempting to occupy Danzig at that point, right? Wait, no, he did not. No, Danzig, Danzig was taken. It was appropriated as a result of the First World War. They were punished. They were economically punished. When Hitler came to power, he had overcome the economic punishment. He had restored some faith into the economics of, of Germany. He had put Germany back on, a, on an even keel. The people loved him. All of what he did to the Jews en masse was yet to be done. And the people got dragged along with that. Now, in order to really understand this, you've got to go back to 1920, which was 19 years before Danzig. It was after the First World World War ended. And you go to the London Daily Herald, and you look at what Churchill wrote. Churchill wrote about a sinister confederacy, I'm quoting him, a sinister confederacy of Jews. In, in Russia, Russia's successful revolution, the first one that failed was 1905. The second one was 1917. And three years later, Churchill, who people accuse of being a Jew or having a Jewish mother, which is all bullshit. But Churchill, by the way, Churchill's mother did come from Brooklyn, New York, um, but she was not Jewish. Churchill wrote an article about the sinister confederacy of Jews in Russia and how they operated and how they did what they did. It is an incredible four-page, very simple read. And I have incorporated that article as the introduction to my book. I've lifted 
his story, but I've interjected the analogy with our Federal Reserve, people within our government that are doing what they're doing. It is the same modus operandi. They have moved into positions of power, except they're not in the position of power. They're in the secondary position. They're always behind the person in power. They're never visible as the Jew that they are. And in the real case, Israeli citizen, which is a more fair way to describe them. Because Israel was created by Rothschild, and all Jews who are part of this take their orders from Rothschild. Rothschild is a magnificent, brilliant military commander. He's not a banker. The family has been associated with banking all their lives. But they're military, top to bottom. They do everything in their power to use the military prowess of other nations of the world for their goals. And they use the debt in those nations to get that power in their hands. Learn learn something tonight. Understand something tonight. When you next hear the Rothschild name, do not think about banking. Think about George Patton. Think about Attila the Hun. Think about generals of the past, warmongers, warriors. They hide behind this. And one of the most amazing things, you, I, nobody can give them a name. Giuliani, about eight years, ten years ago, said when he began to prosecute in the 70s, mobsters, they didn't know what they were doing. They just knew they were going after this group, this, this group of mobsters. Mafia didn't have a name. He says, until we could call it what it was, the mafia, we were just prosecuting isolated individuals that were mobsters. They all happened to be Italian, with very rare exception. They certainly were not the Italians. But until we knew them as the organized criminal syndicate that they were, we couldn't prosecute them successfully until we called them the mafia. That's where Rothschild is with his syndicate today. We don't have a name for them. Until that name is ascribed to them, they'll still operate with impunity amongst us. And anytime somebody aims a finger or aims a, a, a barb at them, they'll scream back saying, you're being anti-Semitic. And immediately that politician or public voice will run as fast as they can from that charge, that branding branding reproach. It's a horrible thing. We all know we don't want to be declared an anti-Semite. But until you can isolate these bastards and call them by the name and things that they do, we'll constantly be on the run from the charge of anti-Semitism. That's one of the more brilliant aspects of what they've accomplished over the last 50 years, 80 years. Uh Okay, Pat, Pat, and now I understand why I, I, we, we've heard you make this statement about calling them warriors. That's your whole point here, to call them what they are. Right. Uh, and they, and, they and, and the, terminology, the terminology or the name of, of, of the warrior uh, is at the essence of what they represent, the, the syndicate represents. You have Rahm Emanuel. He's the mayor of Chicago. He was the chief of staff under Obama. He went to Israel two years before 
two years. He went to um, uh, went to Israel for two years when David Axelrod, an Israeli citizen, discovered Al- uh, uh, Obama in in Chicago in 1993. David Axelrod is a discoverer. He's a a talent scout for Rothschild. They want to lead this nation. Obama was an Israeli appointed president. People say, oh, that's impossible. He's a Muslim. I said, yeah, right. Maybe he is. Put yourself in this position and ask this question. If you manage to get your man elected president of the United States, you want the world to believe he's your man? Or would you want the world to believe he's your enemy's man? And that's what they've done with Obama. Obama probably had inherent Muslim leanings. He had a Muslim background but he was Israel's man in the White House. He did Israel's bidding. He did the Iran deal. Oh, wait a minute. The Iran deal was bad for Israel. No, it was not bad for Israel. Israel can take Iran out any day they want. They don't want to do that. They want the U.S. military to do it. So if the Iran deal was good, the U.S. military would never have to be involved. So if the Iran deal is bad, it makes Obama look even further from being an Israeli running president. And it sets things up for the United States military to be the bad guy dropping nuclear weapons on Iran. That's the background story. That's what's going on in the background. You need to stop and take a look at everything. These people are always one step behind except at the Federal Reserve. Typically, they're never in the hands of power, never the first, first person in power. So the, the circumstances that we live in today are very challenging to see through all of what we're watching happen. But trust me, which is a phrase I, I happen to dislike, so I'll take that back. Please believe me when I tell you everything has been planned, been planned intergenerationally, not something to happen over the course of a four- or five-year period of time. But when it happens, the people who have planned it, executed will be so far away, no one will know who they are. 9-11 is still out there. It was done by Israel, and no one has pointed the finger properly just yet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, hey, Pat, I got a lot of I mean, Yeah, I got a lot of questions. But I'm going to start off saying that Trump's an Israel stooge, you know. And... Uh, the reason I say that is because Gerald Kushner, he's a spy and uh, advisor for Trump because he's going to see spying for Netanyahu. So he'll feed all the information to Netanyahu. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, recently uh, Netanyahu was there, and so Trump agreed with Netanyahu that there should be only a single state. For In other words, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't go along with two, two state uh, for Palestine and Israel. It's just a he single really, state. He didn't really say that, but what he did is open the door for one state. I know, but he's going to do it. And, and uh, now he's... Yeah, no, You've got to be careful. you got to be more... you got to be more thoughtful. You can't just off the top. I used to be like that. I am... I know. Man. Well, I think he's going to do it. And also, he's for... Uh, he says uh, about the settlements. See, now he's back, backtracking, but I think he's for settlements of... Uh, uh, on West Bank by Israel. Now, and then here's what I question to you is, uh, 
he uh, he doesn't appro- he doesn't approve of that deal with Iran. Like you said, he'll use the mili- our military against Iran for Israel. And I th- I think that he's uh, World War Three's around the corner. I think that he's going to go with a conflict with Russia. So I'll leave that with you. If you comment okay. on those. Uh, I will. I'll give you a comment on it because I've thought about that. I sincerely believe that Trump is an accidental president. And first of all, before I even go to that level, you have to understand these people, as brilliant as I paint them to be, are not invincible and they're not infallible. And they have to go with the way things develop in the world. They can't control you or me or the voter on the street. They do a damn good job of most of that by the media control they have, but they can't always count on the outcome. Trump didn't make his daughter marry a Jew. It allegedly happened. You would have to tar and feather me before I would agree it just happened. Jews marry into very wealthy families, and they're appointed to that responsibility because there's an enormous amount of currency being controlled or enormous, enormous amounts of public opinion being controlled. So I'm going to suggest that Ivanka Trump was, a tar- Trump was a target back when she was much younger. I am led to believe Jared Kushner is the son of his father's partner, his old partner, or his grandson. I don't know if that's true. But I'm also going to tell you, at the outset of the campaign, I just kept sitting there, writhing in my seat, being amazed at how stupid Trump was and doing the things he did. And then he doubles down, and he doubles down again. And you know, it works out. And his education at Wharton, University of Pennsylvania, tells you that the guy is not totally stupid. He understood better what he was doing than the public did until maybe two or three steps down the road. So what I'm doing here is setting things in your mind that he's not as stupid as you or anyone else may believe on the outside. He's not a brilliant scientific brain. He's got street smarts, which is something that's unusual for an MBA out of an Ivy League college. I can't tell you how many Ivy League graduates I've met. They're nice people. They're very, very intelligent people. And they're the stupidest sons of bitches that you'll ever run into when it comes time to figuring out what's going on on the street. Trump, he's different. He's got street knowledge. And let me close this and overwhelm your curiosity or your fear. There's a thin little book of about 90 pages called The Prince, The Little Prince. It was written in the 17 or 1500s by Machiavelli, a name you probably know, but you won't know the detail until I tell you next. One of the most important things that Machiavelli wrote in The Little Prince was he was a student of politics and politicians and kingdoms and king's courts. And he made fun of them and he analyzed them. And he said, if you're going to be successful in any field, much less politics, keep your friends closer, close, and keep your enemies closer. Now, Trump had no knowledge of what we're speaking about when his daughter Ivanka married Jared Kushner. No knowledge. I will tell you that. I don't believe he understood one iota of it. That's 10, 12 years ago. 
if he understands it today, and I tend to believe he has more knowledge of it than you and I could come to an agreement on, but I believe he knows more about it. I would like to believe he knows all about it, but it's a huge subject. I think he knows more about it today. His goal is to keep Jared Kushner under a watchful eye. And while Jared Kushner seems to be a senior advisor, I'm going to suggest there's not much Jared Kushner can do without Trump anticipating what his plans are or what the plans are of those people. And at that press meeting yesterday with Netanyahu, I must have gotten sick to my stomach a dozen times. And I watched Trump's face when Netanyahu was doing his vanity game on the, the art of the deal, you're this, you're that, and all the bullshit that the Jews throw at the goy. They'll build your ego. They'll pat you on the back while they're pulling a, a bayonet out of your stomach. They do a great job of that. Netanyahu is no exception. He did a great job of that yesterday. And I couldn't see in Trump's eyes what I was looking for. So all I can do is tell you I'm aware of where you're at and what you're saying. And I am praying that he's exercising Machiavelli's principle of keep your friends closer and your enemies closer, and we'll see more of that as we go. Now, to finish this little bit in answer to your question or your observations, if Trump was not what I sense he may be, which means relatively or fully aware of these circumstances, if he was not aware, the Israeli-controlled media in our nation would not be doing what they can to divide him from his government or from the people and wouldn't have been working as hard as they were all the way to the end of the election process. He's a, he's a loose cannon in their eyes, I believe. I really believe they're afraid of him. They don't want to kill him. They could kill him in a heartbeat if they want. They don't want to kill him. They're going to do their best to bring him around to believe as he should for their benefit and do their bidding without him ever knowing he's doing their bidding. That's the other part of what Rothschild does. Nobody goes to a president or a secretary of the military and says, we need this, we need this. They don't do that. They create the environment where it forces those decisions to be made. But if you knew that those decisions or those decisions were being forced and there were people working against our, our country's interests, you as a president could take the steps necessary to stop it. And his comments about, I don't see a one state, I don't see a two state, that's a very, very carefully orchestrated comment, much more so than you want to give him credit for. He now has Israel on edge. He's told them he doesn't want any more settlements. None of that's important to me. So far as I'm concerned, Israel is a bubble of pus on the planet. Israel orchestrated 9-11. Israel executed 9-11. Israel is our country's enemy. I predicted to good friends, some people that Fred knows, we, the United States, will be at war with Israel in three years. That was a year and a half ago. I still hold that belief. In a year and a half from now, the United States will be enemies with Israel. I still see that coming. 
And if the powers that be find all of these things out, no, we will not hear it announced in the public media. We will not hear the newspapers pick up and say the United States is at war with Israel, but you're going to know it. You're going to know that Israel has fallen from favor. And I see it coming. I have seen subtle, small moves. I see it coming. So I hope and pray it doesn't lead to some huge war. But if we went to war with Israel, it would beat the shit out of going to war with Russia or Iran or anything else like that. So that's the best way I can answer your uh, comments. Whatever your name is. I don't know what your name is. Now, 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 uh, Pat, his two boys are married to Jews, as you know. Yes, they are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I take a different view. I think Israel controls the United States totally. You know. Well, it does. I know. And, you and I are in agreement on that. I'm just not. Yeah, they have total I'm control. I'm not. You know, they control Trump. You know, Daddy Rochester. I don't care who you elect. Give me control of money. I'll control the country. I'm sorry. Hmm. What's that? Daddy Rothschild, he said, I don't care who you elect. You give me control of the money, I'll control the country. They control the Federal Reserve, 1913, so they control the money. Well, they, they, let, me, let me see if I can bring everybody up to speed on that. The Rothschilds do not control the Federal Reserve. They, well, have, they, they have one of their people in usually, not all of the time. Paul Volcker was not a Jew. Tim Geithner yeah. was not a Jew. But you, you have, and Tim Geithner was the president of the New York Fed. He was never uh, chairman of the Fed. Um, but they are not always chairman or running the Fed. Um, but they do predominantly. But the Rothschild family, I will tell you, has not got one-tenth of one percent ownership in the Federal Reserve. It's owned by the Rockefeller family, other Jewish families in Europe, and probably no more than 10 or 15 families. What Rothschild counts on is a nation's greed and its ability to borrow money. You need to get into the technical details of how the Federal Reserve functions, which none of us do. I speak to people all the time, supposed experts. They haven't a clue, and I'm not knocking them for it, but they haven't a clue about how that money, we call money, it's not really money. Money is a store of value. Our currency, which is different than money, is a debt instrument. It's not a store of value. It's not backed with anything except the blood and guts and good faith of the American people. And that happens to be true. But it's not money. It is a debt instrument. Rothschild, when they did the creation of the Fed, 1910 through 1913, when they sent Paul Warburg here, created the Federal Reserve and the promissory note that we know is the Federal Reserve note, which was never put into use until they bankrupted the original, let's say, system in 1928. In 1933, when that Federal Reserve note came out, we began borrowing, and the borrowing takes place every time the Fed issues. The word issue is important because it issues Federal Reserve notes, which represent the debt of the United States. And the plan at the time, and still is, that once you give a politician access to cheap, quote-unquote, money, which it's not, but once you give him the illusion that it's money, and it's cheap, meaning half a point, two and a half points, that politician or group of politicians will continue to borrow and borrow 
and borrow and borrow until it collapses. And all of the time that that's taking place, whether it's with the euro, the British pound even, and the Federal Reserve note, the Rothschild family is collecting, hoarding, capturing, buying gold. Now, gold can never be used as a backing for currency again. That doesn't mean someone won't try it in our nation or other nations. But there's never been enough gold ever dug out of the ground to back the debt of a small nation, much less the debt of all the nations of the world. But you're not going to tell a politician that. He's going to have to have a lot of time to think about it and investigate it before he can come to that conclusion. It took me about three years. There isn't enough gold in the world to cover the debt of a country, much less the country, the world, rather, entirely. It's impossible. Not unless you made an ounce of gold worth 14 or 35 or $260 million an ounce. And people say, oh, well, we could do that. We could do that. Not true. Gold will remain best used for jewelry and industrial metal. And by the way, does anybody understand why the first three letters of jewelry is J-E-W? <laughs> anyone understand why? Can, can anyone offer an opportunity, offer, offer an explanation of why the first three letters of jewelry is J-E-W? Because I'll knock it yeah. off all of you tonight. Do you know? Who con- Does anyone know? Who, co- who controls the diamonds? Nah. <laughs> hey, nah. Sam, we should turn the interview back over to Fred and wait for the Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> if that's okay, because I know uh, unless unless everybody's okay with with this. No, I'm... no, no. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna. You know, th- th- I think this is a, a good a good wrap, uh, Pat. Uh, okay. You've you've wrapped you, you've encapsulated a very uh, full hour of commentary. Uh, I don't think any. You know, uh, Sam. I I think you you finished your question Q and A. Is there no, I don't. I don't want. I, I want to. I want to get Pat's brain on this one. Uh, uh, last one. Last one, though, because we're going to have. Okay. One more yeah. Yeah. I, I got about fifteen more. I got about fifteen more, but to, uh, I'll get this one. Uh, and I've got a question. If that, now, when, uh, when you know we went to Libya, right? Remember, we bombed the hell out of Libya because yeah. they were going to go for a central bank. And then no, they they weren't a central bank. They weren't they weren't under. Now Libya had 143 tons of gold, and 140 and the same amount of silver. Now, what happened to that gold and silver? Did the Rothschilds get that gold and silver? I I wouldn't know, and I quite frankly I don't care. It doesn't it doesn't well, <laughs> your your name is Sam. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't really enter into the picture in any way. I, I wouldn't doubt that Rothschild had managed to get it as he supposedly got the uh, $200 billion or $400 billion or $4 trillion worth of gold in the World Trade Center. All of that, when you, when you begin to do the investigation into whether gold can be functional and in, in be used as a backing for a currency again, um, who has that gold to me is irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. But let me let me go back. I, I want to answer the question about jewelry and JEW, and I'll wrap it on that. This syndicate that Winston Churchill articulated in the London Daily Herald in 1920, this syndicate is a long-term, multi-generational group of criminals 
that are never really exposed to what they are. They're brilliant in their concealment. And they have been operating in nations of the world for centuries, centuries. You probably can go back to the time of Christ, which I did. I spent seven months, six and a half months researching the word Jew, which took me back to the time of Christ. But when you understand like this criminal syndicate, when you understand this criminal syndicate within your population, if you are a Jew, you know what they do. You know their tool. They destabilize currency. They recreate currency. They destroy the monetary system of a nation. In the process, they take the control of that country's military. You understand it. You speak about it in hushed terms. You never speak about it with a non-Jew. In fact, even when you speak about it to other Jews, you're very careful because you don't want to speak about it in such a way that if that other Jew is not a Jew, you've exposed something. What is it that you could expose? You'll expose the fact that you know, as one of the Jews, that your syndicate, you take a quiet, quiet pride in in having as an associate or an association with, that syndicate destabilizes nations' currencies. So if that's the case, and you're a good conservative Jew and you want to protect your family and your life and your future, well, you go into the jewelry business. And when the headline reads the following day that the dollar has collapsed or the Deutsche Mark has collapsed or whatever currency it is that you're living with has collapsed, you cinch up your little pouch of 14 diamonds, 68 diamonds, 32 ounces of gold, 180 ounces of silver, whatever it is that you do, you cinch up the little bag, you get your family, you throw them in a wagon, and you go across the border to the next nation and you operate there for a number of years before the syndicate you take a quiet pride in comes across the border and attacks their currency. And that's why the word jewelry has J-E-W is the first three letters. You'll never get that information from a Jew, however. You've got to find that out on your own. Wow. Man, that is a, uh, that's a pretty deep story there, Pat. <laughs> wow. You get the point? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Quite a tactic. Interesting. <laughs> Okay, uh, Sam, uh, Fred, could I ask uh, one Ray, quick Ray, question? Ray, 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 Go ahead, Ray. Ray. Just, a, just a short one here. Patrick, uh, I've enjoyed uh, hearing what you had to say tonight, but I wanted to bring you back to a time when you were on our call in the past and the subject of the, of the night was 9-11. If I were, understood you correctly at the time, you said that Israel had planted nuclear bombs throughout the United States and that that was what the, the one of the major ways that they were controlling our government. Did I understand you correctly to say that? And if so, do you know that to be a fact? Well, first of all, when I did say that, I would have qualified it with the following language. And the following language would be that I believe. Mm-hmm. Now, I still believe, by the way. I have a great strength and belief on that. 
that throughout the United States, nuclear weapons have been planted. They are not about to take a chance to lose all of the advances they've made in the last 50 to 60 years. And if the destruction of the United States has to happen, they'll do it. Now, that's a huge move on their part. I have a more specific fear now over this last 10, 15 months than I had when you heard me say that probably a few years ago. And it's a fear. It's not based on fact. It's based on the old adage that if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, it must be a duck. There are too many trail marks around and too many people and associations for me to not believe that with 100% of my heart. I can't prove it. But an interesting thing has been going on in Washington over the last number of years, six, eight years. There's been a tremendous amount of contracting work done on the White House. New bunker, new rooms, essentially things to protect the White House. It's been done under Obama, and Obama has been under the influence of Israeli operators. He's been controlled by Israeli, Israeli people. I have a concern that a nuclear weapon, nuclear device, is planted within the White House itself. Now, I can be a raving lunatic, and I can tell you that it's there, it's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. I won't do that, because I can't prove it. But I have enough information to tell you that I firmly believe it's there. And they have the ability to pull that trigger by dialing a phone number. Now, how can how can you elevate that fear to the point of having it researched by people who have the ability? Because that can be found. If you know what you're looking for, that can be found. How thick are the concrete walls of the bunker? How deep under the ground? Could it be in a high point? Could it be in our dome of the Capitol? The Capitol dome's been in construction the past three years, four years. Could we have a nuclear device planted up there? Because the suitcase nuclear device was developed in Israel back 20 years ago. Suitcase, small suitcase. Carry it down a street. Put it down on the floor. It's a nuclear weapon. It's a small kiloton bomb, multi-kiloton bomb. It'll take out a half a mile. You can pick it up. It weighs 30 pounds. It's all provable. That's provable. Israel has bragged about having weapons aimed even at the Vatican. They want the world to believe they are a mad dog and they will take everybody down with them. You know what? That's an easy-to-convey belief. And they've done it. If If you read deep enough into all of their authorities and all of their people, I believe that they would do that. And here, they're not taking themselves down. They would take Washington down and take... It would be called what they call as a decapitation strike. The camera will be on the White House one day, and all of a sudden you'll see this buddy shaking. And the camera will disappear. The screen will disappear. And over the following days, you'll find out that 11 bombs went off in the United States and everyone in Washington, D.C. was killed. Is that possible? Yeah, it's very possible. 
Do we have that possibly in place today? Absolutely. Do the Jews have that capacity today? They've had it for years. That's the way I'll leave you tonight. Wow. I well, I well if, it was, if it was uh, reality, would there be any way of defending against such a uh, situation? Well, they, they would have to be fearful of who is left in, in control of our military. Now, the, the larger issue is who would the world believe did that in the United States? They'd believe that Islam did it. They would believe that Iranians did it. They would believe that someone from the Middle East planted those bombs. And they could easily get that belief spread throughout the world by, by the control they have over Reuters, by U.S. News or whatever it is that we have out there as the uh, news agencies. Three strange Middle Eastern men seen at New York port. Local law enforcement responds without an issue. Three days you have that, and in the fourth day, New York port blows up. Well, who's worth world going to believe? The Middle Eastern men that we're seeing. So all you're going to do is believe what you've been told. Can we change that with this feeling or this knowledge right here? You'd need some large capacity of getting your news out to counter that. And I would tell you that if it was believed our news was losing its power and news was becoming more even-handed and out of the hands of these Jews, we would probably see something happen to stop it all from going any further. So we're, we're at a very, very difficult time. To say that we live in interesting times is an old-fashioned statement. I don't use that anymore. No. We're living in times we absolutely cannot predict what's going to happen. So you, um, I, I don't want to make everybody paranoid. I'm not paranoid. I, I function. I go to work every day. I do what i got to do. But I am concerned about these things. And as a, as a researcher by the name of Dan Medor, about 10 years ago, said he was from Oklahoma. He was a very bright guy, young man, died very young. Yeah. But he, uh, he said that once the crap is out of the horse, you can't get it back in. So all of this information that we're speaking about now, if it's condensed and put in a sensible container, in an understandable and a marketable container, and you've got it distributed quickly throughout this country, and quickly means into the hands of about one to three million people inside of five to six months, crap would be out of the horse. People would start to look at things differently. That's one of the things I've been fortunate over the years. People tell me, they come back over and over again and say, you know, Pat, ever since you told me all those things, the headlines make sense to me. Well, you can't get a huge number of people to pick that information up that quickly. And and I have been working on that and solving that. I think I have that problem solved, but I'm still a good 10, 12 months away from it. But there comes a time, I hope, this year that that crap will get out of the horse and it will be impossible to put it back in. And and the end, the interesting thing is I know other people are working on all this information in different pews of the church. And... Um, there is a tremendous amount of effort going on right now. One of the fears I have is there's a wave of anti-Semitism building, and as much as the Jews know about this 
syndicate within their midst, they're not guilty of it. And I wouldn't want to see things happen to them, such as what Hitler did. And uh, that's scary, because I think we're a much more, I think we're a much more enlightened and gracious and and um, and correct group of people than there were in the times of uh, the so-called Holocaust, which is a which is a created word. And by the way, Holocaust. Does anybody understand how the word Holocaust came about? Current offering. Your silence tells me no, you didn't. But if you get an old dictionary, 1930s dictionary, get the 1930s Webster's dictionary, you look up the word Holocaust, and you're going to see in the description of the word burnt offering. Mm. 1930s and older. And when you dig into it a little bit more, the burnt offering is going to go back to Jews kidnapping babies, Christian babies. Oh, my God. And throwing them into a fire and, and killing them as an offering, a burnt offering to their God. That's what is in 1930s and earlier dictionaries with the word Holocaust. Oh, my God. Up. I didn't make that up. That's fact. You go dig for old dictionaries. Now, you go today, you won't find that. You'll find Holocaust described as numbers of things. Maybe you'll see burnt offering, but you won't see the part about the Jews stealing Christian babies and throwing them into an open fire. You know why? Because in 1972 or 78, we had a Jewish-inspired Roe v. Wade, which has killed tens of millions of unborn babies. And that was the replacement, while Holocaust took on a brand-new marketable name to protect the Jews. When you get into the words, you find fascinating, fascinating stories. But I didn't make that up. You go look it up. You'll find it all for yourself. Hey, Pat, a big thank you for this wrap, for this presentation tonight. Everyone, please go over this link. Share the link. This is about uh, a very critical time in our country's history, the world's history. Uh, We are right on the edge of something that's going to demand our prayers, our, our our vigilance, our compassion, and our awareness. So the awareness of what Pat's talking about is very critical. That's, Good night, guys. Good. Thank Good. you, Pat. Good. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Didi, Steve, Ray, everyone. God bless. Bob Schultz will be back for version three of the podcast of his life's work next Thursday night. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Pat. Thanks, Brad. See you next week, everyone. God bless. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.